Today, we've got Mark Williams Thomas, who was recommended to me by my dad over a year ago as a person he'd seen on TV with a gripping story, ex-policeman actually, but also instrumental in breaking the Savile case into the mainstream news. So thanks very much for coming on, Mark. No problem. Before we get to the exciting stuff about Savile, what is your background then? How how long were you in the police form? What did you do? So, former police detective. Yeah. My role really within policing, as everybody does in the first initial years, is area patrol. I then moved into child protection and then moved into becoming a detective and then finishing up on a unit within Surrey Police. And in essence, my role was really investigating major crime, certainly towards the end, murders, abductions, child abuse, uh, family liaison, so working across a number of murders at any one time. And then left the police force, kind of a bit disillusioned, really. You know, I either stay in the police force the rest of my life or I move on and, and face a new challenge. I'd done everything I really wanted to do in the police force. I dealt with all the major crimes. I'd been exposed to some incredible cases. And the time had come, really, to move on and look for new opportunities. And where I am now, I use my experience as being a former police detective. And it's I love what I do. You know, I'm very passionate about what I do. I set out to help people. I try to shine light into the darkest of corners and bring justice to those people who have been let down by the authorities brilliant and you've got a book out as well i've got it on audio do you want to just tell people the name of that book yeah so hunting killers and it is a it's a real insight i suppose into my life as an investigator and my life working around some of the biggest cases so jimmy savile's in there uh oscar pastorius is in there tia sharp is in there it's full. It's full of really insightful things. But what it does in a quite a unique way to a book is it really gives an insight into how I work. So very often on television programs, which are consumed by millions around the world, is that we can't go into too much detail about some of the minutiae of how we get to certain positions and, and how we do our investigations because we're limited in time. Uh, what the book has enabled me to do is really open up into that. So if you are a crime buff or if you're an investigator or if you want to learn how to do investigations. The book gives a real insight into that. So the link to the book is in the description box below this video. Ours are links to all of Mark's other stuff, his socials, and how to contact him, etc. Working in the police, do you think that gave you a worldview different from the average person? Yeah, the police is unique. Absolutely. It's very different now. Um, sorry, I've got really dry throat. So. You're fine, you're fine. Just take your time. <coughs> Yeah, on this um, interview, like you just said on the TV, they it's all like sound bites. But on this interview, just take as long as you want. Yeah, that's fine. We've got all the time yeah. in the world, yeah. So the police is unique. It's unique because it gives you an insight into no, what no other job enables you to do. You go into people's life at the most traumatic times and you try to help them. You try to get justice. Uh, and so you see the best in people and the worst in people. And what we try to do as police officers is to try to to sift through all the rubbish and try to get to the bottom of what has really happened and then to get victims, families, justice. And, of course, most importantly, keep people safe. That is one of the, the primary roles of the police officer. So I think my time as a police officer has undoubtedly not just formed me as an individual – but enabled me to do what I do now. If I hadn't been a police officer, if I hadn't have done the jobs that I did in the police service, there's very little doubt I wouldn't be able to do what I do now. It is a, 
it is the narr- it is the backbone really of what I do. So, what were some of the worst things that you encountered in your career? Uh, I mean, I think over the years, seeing dead bodies, seeing children who have been murdered, seeing children who are dead, uh, being in a position where you attend critical accidents, where you know people are in the worst possible state you can see, and dealing with the abuse of people, you know, the human race, and and this is one thing that. I've learned to accept it is capable of anything. So the human being is capable of anything and the depravity of which human beings will, will stoop to is the worst you could possibly imagine. So whatever you can imagine, it's worse than that. That's what people are. And I often think of the, the saying, believe the unbelievable. And that really is the role of a police officer is to believe the unbelievable. So at the same time as trying to do that, you also have to try and keep some common sense and also some reality around what's around you so whilst you're dealing with horrific stuff the large majority of the people in the world are good people they're nice people it's just that we end up dealing with that tiny minority so it's very easy to become quite disillusioned being quite a black hole in terms of it all and what i've always focused on is making sure that in terms of externally to policing i have my outlets in terms of being able to to enjoy myself so i'm i I used to play rugby very seriously play tennis you know fitness is a really important thing for me and and my family so as part of all of that if you keep that and your work separate then i think you can you can work in that world which is the darkest of worlds well that's got to be a fine line if you're assigned a case where kids have been killed i mean do you have to like you show up at the crime scene and see the body and everything yeah i mean you you see you see differing levels so sometimes you'll see a crime scene where someone's been killed you might then have to go to the post-mortem and see the examination i remember in my very early days we did a, i went to see my very first post-mortem and a child was was being examined. A child had died the night before. I was there for a post-mortem of an individual and a child was ready to be examined by the pathologist. And in those first few moments when you are in the mortuary, the smell is a unique smell. If you've never smelt the smell of death, it is unique. And whilst you're there, you you some people will faint, some people will be sick, some people will walk away and some people cope with it fine. And I remember thinking to myself that I need to manage this. I need to get through this. And my only way of getting through it was to speak to the pathologist and say to pathologist, what are you doing? Talk me through everything you're going, you're doing. So it became quite clinical rather than, than personal. And that was my way of getting through it. And then so we did the post-mortem. He did the post-mortem on there. I talked to him. He explained to me why they were doing everything. And then we moved on and did the post-mortem on the child. And I remember coming away from that afterwards thinking, you know, that is... That is pretty tough. That's probably one of the toughest things. But I then dealt with many, many other things after that. Uh, I mean, crime scenes became slightly different. What you ended up doing now in the latter years was videos and and photographs became much more of a, a tool in terms of being able to see crime scenes. I remember we dealt with a murder of, uh, so attempted murder of a man in uh, just outside Woking. And then the killers went up to... Uh, Bridlington and murdered in a, almost a gangland style execution. I remember watching the video. The police in uh, Bridlington sent us a copy of the video that they take another crime scene. Uh, and in essence, you had the two victims, one upstairs, one downstairs, who'd had pillows put over their heads and they'd been shot in a very gangsterous style. 
Um, so yeah, you see, you see the worst in people and also the worst in crime scenes. And what it's really important, of course, is that that doesn't take over your life and, and cloud it. So you have to be able to separate what you're dealing with in terms of not taking it home. That, that said, it upsets you. You know, I've always, always said and I maintain the day that seeing images of children being abused, seeing images or pictures of, of uh, murder scenes, the day that that stops upsetting me will be the day that I have to stop doing that job. So if a kid is killed, is that usually because of domestic abuse, somebody that they know? No, I mean, ch children die because children fall into the categories of the most vulnerable. So the most vulnerable in society, the elderly, children, um, homosexuals, prostitutes those tend to be the most vulnerable and because of that they obviously fall into the higher categories in respect of people who uh, who end up being killed children die for all kinds of reasons sometimes it's through domestic abuse um, sometimes it's through stranger attacks obviously very rarely stranger attacks and sometimes it's through tragic accidents children will die for all kinds of reasons because they are sadly vulnerable in society when it comes to murder, is it primarily domestic and people that they know? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, probably statistically, the amount of children that die from a stranger attack is far, far less than those that would die in an environment where the killer is known to them. You mentioned the walking situation and the gangland execution that was subsequent. Was that related to drug gangs? Yeah. So what happened is the individuals came down here. They were, um, were kind of like New Age travellers in this location they went to banged on the front door of this person's house it, it just outside working and they wanted to they came up with a ruse that their dog had been run over and basically they broke in and they wanted money uh, they held a gun to his head they pulled the trigger on the gun but fortunately the gun was a uh, a converted gun and the trigger didn't work properly or the system didn't work properly and he survived got taken to hospital and the two offenders then drove up to Bridlington and killed two drug dealers up in Bridlington and then went on the run and so we ended up actually having to I spent probably three four months almost in hiding with the victim who'd been shot in woke in Woking making sure that he was safe taking all the evidence from him making sure that he was connected to what was going on because of course we needed to protect him because he was our he was our star witness he could identify the individuals not just attempted to murder him but of course then went on and murdered these two people up in Bridlington and I think they resulted in them getting something like 46 years in prison. Did he owe them money or were they taxing dealers? So the two up in Bridlington, I'm not sure the background in terms of what was going on there. They were two dealers. These people were, were, were druggies themselves. And it had got to some kind of feud that they decided that they were going to, to exterminate, exterminate them. And that's what they did. So young people watch things like Narcos. Yeah. And, you know, Pablo Escobar's son says he gets messages every single day from young people saying, I want to be like your dad. I want to be like your dad. And he tells them, no, you don't want to be like my dad. Narcos glamorized it. Mm. And if you get into that lifestyle, someone could just show up at your house and do exactly what you just described. So I've got a lot of young people watching this video right now on YouTube. Do you have a message for those young people who attempted to get into the drugs lifestyle? Listen, crime for one level, people see it as paying. But it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay in the long term because the effects, both in terms of you and to those people around you, are enormous. 
and drugs kill. So very few people who are suppliers of drugs are not users of drugs in some capacity. And you are, you are littering the world with a death. So, and this is what ends up happening is, of course, young people see it as glamorized because they see the money that comes with it. They think that it gives them a status. The reality is, is that that's all very short term. The long term effects, both in terms of them and on society and on the future, are massive. The problem is, of course, is that once they get down that work, that that uh, route, it's very difficult to get off. You know, the criminal justice system, and you've been in a criminal justice system, the criminal justice system is a conveyor belt. Once you're on it, it's incredibly difficult to get off it. And therefore, these individuals that are in that world, you then end up just going on a cycle of reoffending. So anybody out there that has any ideas and any thoughts that thinks that, that crime is the way to go because it pays and it's rewarding, I can tell you the long-term aspect of that is not that case at all. You know, there are there are many other things that you can do to turn your skills to, to benefit both yourself and your future than turning to an easy aspect, which is to try and make a bit of money out of drugs. Very powerful message, Mark. Thank you. And that reinforces what Neil Woods said. The only organisations that can sustain drug trafficking in the long run are the most violent criminal organisations and young people tempted into drugs. I just interviewed a guy... Um, and he said some young people in his town were visited. The Albanian mafia kicked the door in and removed their eyeballs. So that's what you're opening your door to now at this day and age if you're getting involved in drugs. I mean, I think some of the drug access now, of course, have been taken over by, by foreign gangs. So when you look in terms of some of the crimes that are taking place in some of the major cities, well, we've got a lot of foreigners that are coming over here and, and controlling the status and they have no scruples at all you know they literally will do whatever they feel is necessary in order to to get their ends mean whether that be supplying drugs whether that be getting their money paid back to them so these these people have no qualms and they don't have a qualms in terms of your family so you might think actually do you know what it's only affecting me i can tell you if you get on the wrong side of these people they will stop at nothing to get rep to, to get reproduction and to get what they want, which ultimately might be getting to your family. Like the cartels, they will get your whole family, torture them, video it, put it online, and then kill them in front of you. So, yeah, it's 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 something to be avoided at all costs. Okay, before we get to Savile then, I'm taking it that your assignment to the unit led to your interest in Savile, perhaps. Is that... No, no. no, no. I knew nothing about Savile until I was travelling to Interpol. I was going to Interpol in around 2011, probably, to do a piece for BBC Newsnight on the um, images, of uh, child abuse images, what, what, of what Interpol were doing to try and identify offenders. And it was on the way, either back or there, where my producer said to me, have you ever heard anything about Savile being a... And I went, no, I said, he's a weirdo. <laughs> I said, I wouldn't want any wouldn't want to spend any time with the bloke but no i've never heard that he said well that's really interesting because a police force either surrey or sussex did investigate him for uh, child abuse and we're unsure what happened with that or where it went and i said that's really strange i said i've not heard that i said it can't have happened whilst i was in the force because i would have known about it i said so it must have happened after i left and i'm surprised if it happened in surrey because i haven't heard about it I said, but I'll make some inquiries and, and see what I can find out. What did you find out? 
Well, so I then made some inquiries and established that actually Surrey Police had investigated him. Uh, I obviously have got some very good contacts in police forces and, and especially within Surrey because I was an ex-Surrey officer. And they told me, yeah, we did investigate him. Uh, the officer that told me was a very senior officer and he said, look, I can't remember what the outcome of it was. Uh, but suffice to say that we did investigate him and the matter didn't go any further forward. I then went back and told the producer this. Uh, and this is where it all then snowballs because he then talks to his editor and his editor basically said to him, well, that doesn't look to me like it's a story. So the story they were after was incompetence by police, failed to do an investigation or failed to follow it up. And he came back and said, well, the, the, the editor's not really that interested in it. It's not a story in terms of... And I said, I think you're missing the point. The story is, surely, that he's been interviewed in relation to child abuse and that therefore there's an allegation in relation to child sexual offences against such a status of an individual. Uh, but they didn't run with it. And then... I remember talking to him and said to him, he said to me, look, it's dead. We, we can't do anything with it. And I said, well, if you're happy, let me run with it. I said, you know, I'm on a different network. You're on BBC. My relationship is with ITV. Let me run with it and see what I do. It still needed a lot of work. So those people out there have said, you know, I literally followed on with what the BBC had. That's absolutely not the case. What we had to do after that was really build the story. There were some elements in place, but probably nothing more than 10% in place. We then had to build everything else up. And crucially, and it was really important, is that the allegations that the BBC were looking at related to a Duncroft, which was a children's home in Surrey, earlier than that in the Metropolitan Police area. And we, I was very clear that I said, you know, we need to find victims away from Duncroft. And quite simply it was, is that it's very easy for the public to be critical of people who are in approved homes, who are in social services care. What we needed to do is get people away from that environment where who were much more likely, wrongly, but much more likely to be believed in the first instance. And then we can build that up and bring in the Duncroft girls as well to show the totality of what was taking place. And it was a, it was a good year's work as far as investigations. You know, I would sit at at home or in the office and I would just I would just hit the phones I would just phone people up and say to look I've got you found your telephone number either through a website or someone else had given me it and did you know him can you tell me is there anybody else I would talk to and the same way of any investigation is that you start off with a number of names and before you before you know it you've got a, a 2030 you know I've got a case I'm investigating at the moment which is the murder of Lee Boxall and I started off with six names to date i've now got 31 names of people who have all got information who can give to me and that is how investigations work with victims though there must be an urge not to revisit it especially mm. if they're victims of sexual abuse how hard was it to get them to talk really hard so victims fall into many different categories. Often people say that actually the more severe the offence against people, the more difficult it is for someone to talk about it. But actually that ignores the fact that the impact of an individual of an offence differs depending on what has happened to you. So somebody might be raped, but they might deal with that really well. Another person might be indecently touched but their impact on them is greater than the person that's been raped. So when you look at it in terms of the, the severity of the offence, that fails to ignore the impact of the individual. 
So when you're talking to these people, it is literally about saying to them, look, you know, these are very difficult things that have happened perhaps in your life, uh, but we need to be, I'd like to be able to talk about it. And by and large, because of my experience and my use to be able to deal with that, you know, I'm, a, I'm a experienced in interviewing children, in adults in terms of sexual offences, so I know exactly how to talk to people without doing all the triggers. But crucially, what you do find is that the only way that people can move on with their life is to deal with what's happened in the past. And that applies to so many environments, um, probably applies to you in your position when, you know, previously in terms of drugs, you had to acknowledge your offending behavior. You had to get to a position where you actually acknowledged, realized what you did was wrong, thought about the impact and the consequences of other people. And that's exactly the same in terms of child sexual abuse. It's about acknowledging what's happening to you, not blaming yourself, putting the responsibility back to the offender and understanding that actually there is a way through this by dialogue, by communication. And for some, that is about justice. And justice serves itself in many forms. Justice is not just about an element of punitive effect. And of course, in Savile's case, he was dead by the time I started investigating him. So there was no punitive element. But justice by being believed. For so many people, simply being heard and being believed in terms of what you're saying has the most amazing effect on people. So what were the range of offences coming forward from the victims that you interviewed about several? So they range from everything. So it was from rape down to, to indecent assaults, touching. And also the, the, the period of time between his offending behaviour certainly moved between the 60s all the way up to the late 2000s. So I think his last offending was around 2007, 2008, something like that, and his earliest offending in the 1960s. Uh, in his, his offending didn't change that much. It became less aggressive in the latter years. He became older. Uh, but in the early years, aggression, power and control were one crucial element of his offending behaviour. He was, he was a particularly nasty early offender. Mm. So how many victims had come forward for Newsnight and were they all Duncraft, did you say? So I think Newsnight had one victim and one witness and they were both Duncroft related. And then obviously by the time we got involved, uh, we spoke to, to one of those girls who was the uh, victim in relation to um, um Newsnight story, but she didn't want to. She didn't want to give an interview, so we didn't. So when we then found our victims, they were unique victims that we found. They weren't victims that the Newsnight had, um, and so what we did end up using one of the witnesses from Newsnight. Uh, but all the rest were were found by ourselves and took a lot of time. I have to tell you, in terms of some of those victims, they took months to feel comfortable to tell us their story and that involves meeting them for the first time you tend to meet somebody in a public at the first time you then meet them a number of times after that and that relationship takes months and months to be able to get to a position where they finally disclose and tell you what's happened and the other thing as far as an interview goes is that I never if I'm doing this for an investigation I don't want you to tell me what's happened to you until I'm ready to write that all down or record it or take it on camera because I want to hear that for the first time and I also don't want you to give me it in piecemeal. It's 
really important that you think about it all, you take your time, you write it down. And then when we do do it, I get it in one one lump from you. And that's a very much an evidential gathering point of view rather than drip feed along and along. Because the other thing that interviewers do really badly is they influence your thought process. So you, if you watch a lot of interviews on television, because by and large interviews on television are not experienced or qualified in, in, in doing interviews, they are very leading. They are also very, um, very narrow-minded in terms of their questioning, their approaches to people. And by and large, interviewers don't listen to what they're being told. There are so many times that you'll watch somebody who is being interviewed and actually the interviewer does not listen to what they're telling you they're ready about their next question and there's a real skill to know what you want to ask to understand where it's going but also to react to what you're being told so when I go into an interview I know exactly what I want to ask I've structured it I've worked it all out but I'm led by you so if you start telling me stuff and it takes me off on an avenue, I'll go there. I'll bring you back to where I want to answer some of my questions, but I'll go with you. Uh, and so the importance, of course, is getting your account. It's about you. It's not about me. Yeah, and there's fact feeding as well. I watched that with Brendan Dassey. It was, it was terrible making a murderer. Is there a threshold of an amount of victims and matching details that the police need to prosecute? Simple answer is no, but of course the stronger the evidence, the greater the weight of the prosecution and the likelihood of a successful conviction. Crown Prosecution Service has to go through certain elements in terms of uh, of being an acceptable lever to bring a charge uh, and one of those of course is that they have a reasonable likelihood of a successful prosecution. So the stronger the evidence the better and in terms of victims so what you want to do in terms of victims is you want to get some similarity between their accounts in other words they're both sell they're all saying that this is how they groomed me this is what they did to me this is what they said to me this is how they behaved you also want to get some similarity between the manner in which that they were communicated with they were contacted with perhaps the locations they've been to what's really important is to also get some independence between victims so that they don't all know each other they haven't communicated with each other there's no no um, suggestion that there's a collusion between what they're saying and of course the more victims you can possibly get so when we investigated Savile we started from a point of one victim we then got to five victims and I remember saying to the network when that when we showed them five victims they said well keep going and I said to I said to the lawyer for how long how how many victims do you want before we are in a position to do this story and he came back and said, that's a very imp- interesting question. I don't know how much the channel wants. And I said, well, listen, you know, it's, it, I've only got an hour. I can tell a, tell a story in. That's a, my program is an hour. We can't do them justice if we have any more than five victims. And what I'm not going to do is go and get more victims that I can't tell their story for because that's a massive impact. You know, I take great care in the people that I work with. And when I do go and speak to people and when I interview them, what you don't want to do is bring all this trauma up and then not deal with it. So so there was a there's a real responsibility we have as program makers. And so when we got those five victims, I remember there was a concern whether they wanted they thought that was enough. But they didn't come back and said, actually do you know what? That is enough. And the the 
the similarities between the manner of the offending behavior, the similarities between the way that he conducted himself with them and the types of offenses were so common. There was a common thread through his offending behavior that he it could only be him as being responsible. So how come he got away with it for so long if there were so many victims? Well, it is it is one of those incredible cases where over the years people knew certain things. And so in total, you end up with uh, finally 44 reports done. So there were 44 separate independent investigations after the whole of the invest uh, whole, whole of the case came out so 44 different organizations did reviews but when you look back at it and you look in terms of some of those early cases so in 1964 there was a, a report i'm going to just get my glasses and i can give yeah, you some of the facts go for it that's fine um, and, like, and like i said earlier to people watching this if you are interested in mark's book which does feature savile the link is in the description box below this video as are links to all of Mark's other stuff online. So in total, you have... So, so after our programme, we had 440, 450 people came forward to make allegations, and that resulted in 214 crimes recorded. And those crimes are, in other words, people who have come forward and said, we were raped, we were touched by him. So that re resulted in 214 separate crimes. And what they established is that that was between a period of 1955 and 2009. So that's a shocking period of time. And they established that there were seven separate occasions where, or seven separate victims where the police had information which could have resulted potentially in an investigation. And I'll take you through them. So the first one is 1964. So there is a piece of intelligence that sits in the Metropolitan Police Files where Duncroft girls were going to a flat in the Metropolitan Police area and they were associating with a convicted sex offender. And Savile was connected at that address, right? So as a result of that, that intelligence went into the police system in 1964, but nothing happened with it. So if you take it in its simplistic form, the very first time that people knew that Jimmy Savile was connected to the sexual abuse of children was 1964. And then there was an anonymous letter in 1995. Now, this anonymous letter is absolutely crucial. And if you it's worth reading the anonymous letter if you haven't already done it. It sits in with the HMIC um, report. That letter was written by an anonymous, anonymous person who clearly knew both Savile and one of his victims. And what that person said is that this individual is incredibly powerful. He will attack anybody who has a go at him. He has the influence and the power of politicians and the royalty behind him. And he has had to change his telephone number because a child that he's been abusing, a young rent boy is the phrase that they used to use in those days, but basically a child who he had been sexually abusing uh, was trying to blackmail him and he'd changed his number. It then went on to say from the, the writer of the letter is that you have the powers at New Scotland Yard to properly investigate this. I've done my bit. I've told you about what I know and it was quite detailed in the letter. It's now up to you. That letter... The police did nothing with. There was clearly information in that letter which could have been followed up, none more so than simply establishing whether or not 
there was a criminal offences against Savile in terms of allegations being made. But nothing was done about that. That letter simply went nowhere. Um, and then there was, in 1963, a report. So, they, so those are formal reports that sit within the documents. Then there are a separate report that have been found through intelligence documents. And that was in 1963. A man goes into a Cheshire police station to make a report of rape, naming Savile. The Cheshire police officer tells him to go home and move on. Forget about it. Astonishing. So you have a victim of sexual abuse, goes to the police station and gets told to go home and forget about it. That was a sign of the times. That's what happened in those 1960s, 70s periods of time. Um, in nine, again, in 1963, a man and a woman who'd been to one of the productions of, I think, at Top of the Pops or something, he, the, he goes to the police station at Vine Street Police Station in the Metropolitan Police Area and says, my girlfriend was sexually abused by Savile whilst at the studio. And the police officer says, you know how serious it is to make allegations like that? You could get yourself arrested. Go away. He leaves. And then... Uh, 1980 there's a victim that comes forward to the Metropolitan Police who says that she was sexually abused by Savile in his camper van now none of that goes anywhere so you've got three separate allegations two in 63 one in 80 you've got a letter in 1960 sorry nine, a letter in 1995 you've got the report intelligence report in 1964 so this is all pre-19. 90 it's up to 1980 but then the most significant things happen in 2000 so in 2003 a, a, another person makes an allegation that she was sexually abused at top of the pops nothing happened in relation to that uh, and then the two significant ones which is in 2007 and 2008 so in 2007 three victims come forward to sorry police and say they were sexually abused by savile and then in 2008, a single victim comes forward and said they were abused by Savile. That led to the investigation that, of course, we all know about now. But what it does very clearly tell you is that prior to our story in 2012, which obviously broke it, the police were fully aware of Savile's offending behaviour, albeit in silos. So not all that information had been shared across different police forces. But had they have made the necessary inquiries, they could have done it. And what it does highlight, and it, the, the reports are critical, what it does highlight is the incompetence of the 2007 Surrey Police investigation, which was totally incompetent. Good grief. How many of Savile's victims were male then? So there were a number of male. I don't know what that number worked out to, but there were a number that were overwhelmingly they were female uh, and overwhelmingly they were children, but there were adult females and there were a number of male victims. His offending behaviour was, was overwhelmingly females, but what he did do is on the occasions, I think he targeted young males because he saw that as a power and control but not not in the same degree at all as far as females, young victims. But he does enter into a quite, I say unique, quite limited number of offenders who cross across all the spectrums as far as male, female, young and old. Large majority of people have a target age group. Savile wasn't like that. 
So you mentioned the royal protection and political protection that he had. When I read um, Princess Diana, in her own words, the book, she talks about when she's having trouble with Charles. Yeah. Savile's brought in as like a marriage guidance counsellor. Mm. How does someone who just was a DJ from the north, poor background, enter the highest level of royal circles without some background check? And, yeah. you know, isn't this... Doesn't MI5, MI6 look at these guys? Anyone who goes in there, or the Royal Protection Police, look at anyone who's going to go in there and see their entire history and mm. filter people like this out? So, um, I mean, there's lots of issues there. But in terms of why he ended up becoming a bit of a confidant for Prince Charles, so the Duke of Edinburgh uh, personally asked Savile if he would give some guidance to Prince Charles in relation to his, into his relationship with uh, Lady Diana. Now, of course, if you look at that, on the outside, you might go, okay, that's fair enough. But then look about Jimmy Savile. Jimmy Savile had never had a former formal relationship with anybody. He was single. He was weird at best. He had had previous allegations made against him. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting, and there's no evidence, that the Duke of Edinburgh knew anything about that. He just simply saw him as this this larger-than-life character and thought that he might be useful for giving some guidance to Prince Charles. And of course, when you are a royal, and particularly more so then than it is now, your circle of confidence is really small. You really don't know who to trust. So you you have a limited number of people to whom you can share things with. And they obviously felt confident that Savile was a safe pair of hands in, to, in order to tell. And of course, Savile kept thousands of secrets so, yes, he was, in one sense, a very safe pair of hands. But, of course, the secrets that he kept primarily were for his own benefit and also in relation to his own offending. So you can see why he got involved in that. Why did MI5, why did the um, monarchy not know about his offending behaviour? Again, what we don't know, and it's never been never been uh, as any of the reports is the totality of who knew what within the government organisations and particularly with the honours, etc. Who knew what about Savile? Savile had an individual who was promoting him in every element within Whitehall as far as getting him to the honours area. I mean, he was decorated in every element. He was a papal knight. He was Sir OBE. He was the lot. I don't think there was anything else he didn't have. So he had backing within Whitehall. He had backing within government. And I think as a result of that, and because of his status, this was a man who was elevated to a status of of effective, almost royalty, royalty within television anyway, um, that made him untouchable. And I think what it also meant is that people didn't ask questions. They took it as a given that he was okay without saying, but is he? Is this the right person that we want? So when you say that he knew people's secrets, are you implying that there were possibly powerful co-conspirators in his crimes? Absolutely, yeah. And whether they were whether they're perceived to be as powerful as him, I'd say not. I think he was the most powerful by overwhelmingly. But there are other co-offenders with him who offended with him. No doubt about that. We got evidence, compelling evidence in relation to that. And there are a couple, I think, that have been prosecuted or certainly going through that process. Uh, and there are others that have got away with it. But there's no doubt that overwhelmingly, 
Savile committed his offences on his own, overwhelmingly. But there are a small number of occasions when he committed offences with other people and he knew exactly what their offences were and, of course, he had the power and control over them. So he was able then to to bring him into his confidence and, and have that power over him. The suggestion that he was part of some network, no. I mean, people who've suggested that are people who don't understand, firstly, how and secondly how Jimmy Savile offended Jimmy Savile was the type of person who could not he would not have offended against somebody else sorry he would not have offended had that other person either not been offending with in in the same room as him but he was also very careful because he knew that his world could come down very very quickly and very few offenders co- commit their offences. This idea that there are lots and lots of rings operating all over the place is just not true. There are people that share lots of other child abuse material with other people. That doesn't make them a ring. It just simply means that they've shared with other people their material. A grief. Um, so the Newsnight expose then, was that pulled because of his powerful connections no, no it was no. Paul I don't don't believe at all you know the the uh, editor of Newsnight he made the wrong call yeah. but I don't believe in any way there's no evidence to support it he pulled that because he didn't see the story he failed to see the story was that this is Sir Jimmy Savile one of the biggest profile names in television is a child sex offender that's the story that was always a story he wanted to see Jimmy Savile failed police investigation that's the story he was looking for and yes there was a failed police investigation but you had to deal with the first aspect before you could move on to the latter one because of course down the road we showed that the police failed in many areas but what we had to establish first of all is that this was a child sex offender and he missed that story so the charity all raising all the millions did he use that as a shield to protect himself yeah i think it's so I've quoted and I was quoted in the Radio Times for saying this man created some of his shows as a vehicle for his offending behaviour. And I truly believe that he did, because the elements of offending behaviour are twofold, access and opportunity. Right. So the access to children and the opportunity to offend. So he created the access to children through his vehicles, through his ability to be able to see children, spend time with children, and his opportunity was to be alone with them because he was this respectable individual. So he got access to children and the opportunity. And so those two key elements of offending behaviour were present, and I believe that he created some of those opportunities. Now, whether he created every opportunity in order to offend, I doubt it because people are not bad all the time. They're just bad either a bit of the time or a lot of the time. So even in the worst individuals, there are positive traits in regards to those people. So I don't believe that that was a forefront of his thoughts all the time, but it obviously was a a, a large element. And that enabled him to offend to the degree that he did, which was at some stage off the scale. He was offending probably every day at some stage. It's been a reoccurring theme on this podcast of, on canals and barges and reading um Savile one of Savile books some of his early offences were on a barge is there a reason why gravitate towards that so as far as offendings go is that you the more stable you are the easier you are for police to prosecute and find you 
the most nom- the more nomadic you are, the harder it is to find you, but also pin you down. So what you do end up finding, and if you look in terms of victims who are prostitutes, because they have a nomadic existence, they have a lifestyle which is not what we would say is the norm. In terms of investigating those cases, it's much harder getting witnesses, finding out what they've done. Uh, And if you then use that as reverse in terms of the offender, if the offender puts themselves in a position where they're outside the norm, they're outside the normal aspects. You tell me where there there are canals where they have CCTV. So there are canal networks up and down. I mean, it's one of the untouched areas, really, in terms of crime. So we've now we've got a great network of CCTV on transport, which is roads, rail, flights. All of that's covered. But what isn't covered are canals. So if you were a criminal, I'm not suggesting you that this is a guide. Often when I do my programs, people say you make programs which actually help criminals. (laughs) And what 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 is actually very clear is that canal networks are a great opportunity for offenders to both commit their offences and transport their their um, items that they want. So if you've committed a burglary in a certain area, get on a barge, disappear to another area, and you very, very few police forces, if any, do any monitoring of canal networks. So the canal networks are an untapped area of crime. Well, fascinating. Here's a message from our sponsor. So does anyone fancy a free case of beer, craft beer that is, from Beer 52? Last thing you need, Jen, you are always late for work after you're drinking beer. (laughs) 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 That's eight delicious craft beers from some of the best breweries on the planet. So simply head over to beer52.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. If you didn't know. All you got to do is then pay the free £5.95 postage. Nothing. Peanuts. Peanuts. In fact, they send some snacks with them. You may get some yeah. peanuts. So every month, Beer 52 send a new case with a different theme. From various parts of the world, too. What parts of the world do you prefer your beers from, Jen? Ah, uh, I guess... Oh, God, where... <laughs> Where's a good part of the world? I imagine you're a German. A German. I German. knew you were going to say German. Is that because of, yeah. of the strength? Yeah, and the taste. <laughs> Members have tasted beers from 40 different countries spanning five continents. Jen has tried them all, and she's had brands from Mars as well. <laughs> you also get a magazine which delves into the theme, beer and producers. Do you contribute to that? magazine Jen? Uh, no, no i haven't read it yet no i'll, I'll happy to <laughs> you also get two free snacks yum you can choose a case of light beer only or a mixture of dark and light do you prefer light or dark well, i like my beer like i like my men <laughs> weak weak <laughs> there is no minimum commitment you can pause or cancel anytime so don't forget that's beer52.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. And all you got to do is pay the piddly £5.95 postage. And claim your free case of beer now. Yes, get on it. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's very important for the podcast production. And the links, as usual, are in the description box below this video. The Director General position was up for grabs around the time of the Newsnight teams of putting together the Savile film. 
Savile investigation was going to be a major scandal. Internal politics regarding that position played a role, do you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I remember in the out. So we made the program and we were ready to go out to public to to broadcast so what so the story behind the making of the program was that essentially we got to a position where the program was ready to go and on the saturday so on the friday we'd agreed a process in terms of giving some information to the newspapers so what the uh, itv publicity desk said let's give it to the mail on sunday as an exclusive and then we'll give the extra bits to some of the other newspapers and i have a very good relationship with the sunday mirror so i said well i'd like to give some to the sunday mirror because they're a very good paper and i know the editor very well and they said okay well why don't you do a personal interview for the mail on sunday and we'll give everything else to the sunday mirror and so i said okay it's fine and i remember on saturday i got a phone call from i was at my son's football match and i got a phone call from the reporter from the mail on sunday and they said well, we're just finalizing this report for tomorrow can you just tell me a little bit more so i told them and they said well isn't there any more and i went no there isn't that's the story i said what well, you want more and they went well it's not really big enough and it's not this and i went right so i thought okay and so sunday comes and the sunday mirror and the sunday sunday people run the savile story on the front page the Mail on Sunday runs it on page five or something like that. And and I'll never forget that because I think that's a really significant moment in terms of, of not understanding the, the gravity of the story. That story then ran on the front pages for a consecutive 41 days, the Jimmy Savile story. So that tells you how massive this was, not just in terms of, of the UK, but internationally and worldwide. And the the aspects in terms of, of the BBC then became a big story because, of course, when we were making the programme, we wrote, as we would do, to a right to reply. We wrote to the Director General at the time and said, can we have an interview in relation to the allegations we've got and the information we've got? And the Director General refused to give us an interview and said no. So, And actually, furthermore, went on and said, we basically, we don't know anything about this and just dismissed it out of hand. Now, that was their first massive failing because what they should have done, and this is a massive learn for any organisation that's facing these problems, is they should have said, listen, you know, this is not on my watch. It's happened a long time ago. We take these allegations really seriously. We will now launch an investigation to find out what's gone on. That's what they should have said, but they didn't. They buried their head. They came up with a very arrogant attitude. And actually then that manifests itself and just became worse because what you ended up with was the BBC then having to almost go full circle and, and then kind of some kind of acceptance to a level. Uh, but the, the problem with the BBC is that it's level, it, it has levels of middle management and high management. Uh, and often the people with the information are the, the troops on the ground. All right. And so and it applies to all organizations, but but the BBC is particularly large. So you have the, the troops, I would call them on the ground. These are the people that have the information, know what's going on and are able to tell you as a as the boss what you should know. But what happened is that the senior management and the middle management failed to engage with the troops on the ground. So they were dealing with what they wanted to deal with and what they thought that they knew without knowing the information. And therefore, as a result of that, their arrogance was that they came out and gave certain information, which, of course, was wrong and not true. Uh, so that's where it failed. 
I think if you look back on the Savile investigation, if you worked in risk management and crisis communication, that is the example of how not to do it. Is there a scramble to protect the mothership when something like this happens? There always is. You know, look at baby Peter, you know, the 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 chief um, head of children's services came out and said, we've done nothing wrong. You know, this is the biggest problem with organizations is that when you get something wrong, hold your hand up. We failed. We need to do it better. We will properly investigate what's gone on and we'll find out and we'll get to the bottom of this. When you come out with the arrogance and say, actually, do you know what? We didn't do anything wrong. It's, it, it, it will fall back on you. You will end up in time wishing you'd never said that. And that's that's shown and repeated itself over and over and over again. And the BBC exactly the same. You know, as a result of my investigation and my programme and the impact of what it caused, the Director General resigned. You know, I think as far as, as moments in time, you know, my programme was a massive moment in time, but there are two other moments which I think are probably the biggest moments in time, which is one, the Director General re- resigning and Jimmy Savile's headstone being removed. You know, those two moments for me, I remember where, where I was on both occasions. One occasion I was on the tube and the other occasion I was coming back from an interview on the train. I remember them saying the Director General's resigned and, and it was like, this is just incredible. And actually, he didn't need to resign if he'd have taken the proper advice and he had dealt with it properly. He wasn't in post when all this went on. But what he was able to do is to deal with it and give some kind of reassurance that the BBC were taking this seriously. That didn't come across. Was it not the BBC? My dad saw you on then. Are you banned? So, no, I do. I'm not banned for the BBC. I do do BBC stuff. I mean, it's, it's got better now because obviously time's passed and I've got some good friends with very senior um, bosses at the BBC. But uh, no, I mean, my relationship is, is very much with ITV and uh, the BBC. Uh, there are still people in the BBC. There's still people in, in television worldwide uh, and in the media who hate me for what I've done who dislike me because I've exposed Jimmy Savile and subsequently exposed Max Clifford, Rolf Harris and other people. You know, I can't, that's their inability to deal with things. That's their failings. All I can do is hold myself true to what I believe I've done and what I believe was the right thing. And I know that exposing Savile not only had a huge impact on me physically and mentally because it was a massive thing to do, but it was the right thing to do. And I know that I have saved hundreds if not thousands of people from either continued trauma or being abused and so when i look back on it and think people often say to me you know a tiny number of people would say to me yeah but actually do you know it was wrong to do that you know this is an innocent man as i go the effect of savile the effect of exposing savile has changed people's lives and and i I don't think I'll do anything. I, I do a lot of things all the time, but I don't think I'll do anything that will have such a massive impact. You know, through my life as a police officer, through my life now as an investigative reporter, I help people. I change people's lives because I give them some uh, some justice, some closure, but nothing to the degree that exposing Jimmy Savile did. That brought it. The Savile effect changed people's attitude around the world for child abuse. It changed authorities' positions. It made a massive difference. And, and I, for that, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly proud to have been involved with that. I'm incredibly lucky that I had that opportunity. 
And yeah, there are, I suppose, three people that made that happen, which was my producer, Leslie Gardner, my assistant producer, Rebecca Hogarth, and Alex Gardner, who was my exec producer. Without those three people by my side, uh, we would never have got this broadcast. So was your original motivation to protect future victims? No, it was to give justice to those victims now. So to those people who hadn't been listened to, had been ignored. You know, my life is as a police, it was bread and butter for me. You know, the fact that someone was coming forward and saying they'd been abused was what I did every day when I was in a police service. I went after offenders years, years later who have committed offences. And I've, and I've helped and changed people's lives. And I'm very good at doing that. So when that came forward, it was for me, it was very simple. Of course, when it started to, to snowball, you know, I remember meeting the, we had a, a, um, it was, a, so it was, a, I think this, the, pro, the week after the story had broken, I was at rugby with my son and my phone rang from my agent and she said, can you speak to the superintendent who's in charge of Operation Nutrient? He needs to talk to you urgently. So I phoned him and he said, Mark, he said, um, he said, I'm sorry I haven't phoned you before this. Things have been really busy. I said, that's fine. I said, I've been busy myself anyway. And then he said, could we get together urgently next week? And I said, yeah, that's no problems. He said, can I come and see you with, with, uh, with my colleague? I said, yeah, yeah, come in. I said, I'll get uh, the team together and we'll meet. So we met up on the sixth floor at ITV Towers with the lawyer, with my exec, producer, and, and I think the commissioner as well. And I remember he, he came in and he said, look, I'm, I've, been commissioned, I've been asked by the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police to do a scoping exercise. He said, I don't do scoping exercises. He said, I'm an investigator. He said, so this is an investigation for me. He said, I reckon there's probably around 20, 30 victims. And I went, 500. I said, there are 500. And he looked at me and he went, really? And I went, I can tell you, I've been doing this for a long time now. I said, I reckon there's 500 victims. And of course, where did we get to? 500 victims. I commend you for doing all of this, but when it started to rock the establishment, it was snowballing. How did you feel? Was it exciting? Were you nervous? I remember my mum said to me prior to doing the programme, do, do you think you should do this? Are you not going to put yourself at risk? You know, I've had, and as a result of uh, the programme, but also in result of other things that I've done, I've had child abuse material sent to me. I've had a petrol bomb sent to me. I've had threats sent to me. You know, I have all kinds of things. People get onto their high horses. And you know, I take precautions. I'm very careful in terms of, of where I go and what I do. I limit very much my contacts with people. I take great care in terms of, of communication. But I think there is undoubt. I've upset people. No doubt I've upset people. Uh, and those people, some of those are quite powerful people. And some of those people will never, you know, never uh, say anything nice about me, want anything to do with me. I remember recently, so there was a piece that was done in the mail about me, which was by a, a reporter, David Rose, who has a dislike to me. He's always wanted to try and get me anyway. And um, and he wrote this piece, and it was effectively criticising me for the arrest of other people, other people since. Um, and I was like, hang on a minute, I, I don't arrest people. That's the police. I just give them the information. So all I did was created the the, the, the platform to give people the confidence to come forward. I then share that information to police. It's up to them what they do with it. Anyway, he was incredibly critical. And I remember my um, editor, my TV editor, and he said to me, Mark, he said, the problem is, is there are some people out there who have not forgiven what you've done and they still want you. 
And I went, he said, he said, I'm, there's no way around that. He said, you'll be popular for a while. And then obviously as a result of that, you know, these other people who come forward, they keep banging away, they keep banging away. And, you know, I'm a pretty open book. Those people that um, want to know about me, I don't hide anything. It's all on my Wikipedia page. You know, I've had some interesting elements in my life. Uh, but that is what makes me what I do. I I go after injustice. I go after the baddies. And if you are a baddie, I will find information on you. And that might mean, you know, this this idea that the people who, um, you know, glass houses and throwing stones type of thing, the biggest pushback you get is normally from people themselves who've got a lot hidden. You know, if you are one of the fascinating things that I do when I investigate somebody, and I always used to love this, but in one way, but it was everybody has secrets. Everybody has skeletons. When something happens, which is critical, which is serious, we pull your life apart. When you are a victim of murder, for example, we pull your life apart. So whatever has happened in your life when you are a victim of murder, I will find, we will find out about. And I think it's a really interesting, I talk about it in my book, around the aspect of is that even when you're dead, I will find out everything about you. And so there are lots of things. Now, of course, large majority of people hide them or they don't become significant because everyone does things and they're not really significant. But when you're out there claiming to be this other person, when you're out there saying, well, I'm this and you put yourself on a moral platform as being the right person, all I say is be very careful because, you know, your life might be very different if the people knew what you were really like. I think I read a quote in your book about, you know, you find out if they have affairs, if they've got a drug problem, or, you know, what they're doing, all these other extra... Some of the stories you find out is just incredible. You know, of course, technology now is even better because it enables us to go through people's social media, enables us to find out through their phones and everything who they've been communicating with. But, yeah, you know, I, I love that. I love finding people out. I love digging into people's... And sometimes that takes a long time. It takes weeks. It, may, it takes months. And I think the other, the important thing is any investigation is often when I start the investigation, I might then put it down for a while and pick it up again because it takes a long time in terms of sometimes getting positioned to where you can bring that evidence. And Savile, I worked on it for a year. That wasn't every day. Some days I'd do a lot. Other days I'd do nothing. And sometimes I needed to give people space, just allow them to think about what they were doing because the massive difference between television and any other platform is that it's in perpetuity and it's visual. Yeah, radio, voice newspaper just in print television so the biggest hurdle to get somebody to give you their story is television what's your protocol when you receive a petrol bomb threat or abuse material so well it depends who i'm working with at the time really so the tends normally it's through the security of the organization i'm working for and in fact in all of those cases it was for itv so it went through their security obviously the police come involved get involved um at the early days it involved some security checks on my house the police coming and visit me um and uh, i'm really then trying to get them to investigate now one of the major mistakes i i did when i was sent the child abuse material which was particularly nasty stuff and and actually this bloke it clearly was abusing kids he said come and get me you know think you could he says you think you can get think you uh, something along the lines it was a, it was savile at hush mail and it was something along the lines of you think you can get think you think you're good you can get anybody you come and get me then and i left it to the police to investigate it and they tracked him down to an internet cafe somewhere in london but it didn't have cctv um, and i really annoyed because i wish i'd have 
pursued that because I think I would have found him. Um, Catch me if you can, kind of. Yeah, thing. it was like that. Um, and but I think it it creates, and of course the other thing is it is it impacts on your loved ones and your families, and you know they worry and think actually, do you know what what's the impact on on me? Does it affect me? You know, um, but I think it's also you've got to be in to be in a position and say I can separate those elements. There are horrible people out there, and the most important thing, if somebody wanted me dead, I wouldn't be sat here now talking to you. It's about fear. It's about trying to to shut you up in whatever way possible. Um, yeah, these idea. I mean, I often read people people put out online saying, you know, the establishment wants to shut people down. You know, they're bringing threats against people. They're, they've been uh, you know, intimidated. And I can tell you, not one person in the establishment has set to intimidate me. They know if they did, they'd be on a hiding to nothing because I'd just expose them. But not a single person. The people who have tried to silence me are the general public are the small minority of people in the general public who thought Savile did nothing wrong, who thought that Max Clifford, Rolf Harris are really nice people. You know, these people, I, I do a programme called On the Run where I catch wanted criminals. You know, when I catch somebody and this one guy I caught and he was wanted for uh, firearms offences, you know, he said, I'll come and get you. You know, and I think he was responsible for, for some of the threats that were made. So it's the public it's not the hierarchs so those people who claim oh they've been silenced by by influential people nah so overwhelmingly the public are in support of what you're doing everybody in here is in support of what you're doing um these people that is it like an attack on their identity and their belief system to think that someone like savile has done this and rolf harris has done this and they can't accept that psychologically they just justify or dismiss? I think it's different ways. I mean, sometimes these people, of course, have grown up with them, so it becomes part of their life. So they've seen them as being acceptable and a norm. And it, if you then say to them, actually, that's not what it was like, they find it really difficult to acknowledge that and accept that. There are other people out there who literally do not... If you said to them, this table was black, had a black cloth on it, they go, it's white. And you like go, and they, these are, there are people out there who you cannot logic, you cannot argue logic with, because you'd have that argument, and they'd be shown to be an idiot, but they'd still argue it. And you like go, and there's no point in even talking to you because your argument makes no sense. Those are the people I call them the Green Ink Brigade. So I get, uh, so I'm quite easy to find in terms of of being able to contact me through through social media or through emails, and I've made a conscious decision to that because. The public are my eyes and the ears for solving my cases. They're also crucial for giving me information. So I, there's a balance between making yourself approachable but also being a target. And as you say, overwhelmingly, the public are good. It's the tiny minority. And it's those minority that, of course, have the impact. And I can't stop them. All I can do is try to, to be strong and to say, do you know what, they're not going to bother me. They do. You know, this whole, this, this saying, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I mean, whoever came up with that, absolute bollocks. I mean, it's rubbish. It's totally doesn't, it's not right because words hurt. Words really hurt, you know, and particularly when you have a profile. You know, I remember when I, my, my daughter came back from school when she was very young and she'd been on the computer and she'd been looking for, uh, I think they'd been searching parents' names as, as people do. And she came back really upset and the school rang home and said, look, 
she was really upset today. She'd looked on the computer and she'd seen that uh, her dad was on there. Some really nasty stuff said about him, and he was uh, he had a hangman's noose around his neck. Um, and you know, ever since that date, I've always said to my children, "Listen, just don't read anything that's online." You know, the days that looking for your name online, uh, you know, those are those are a distant i can't even remember the last time i ever searched my name and i wouldn't do that you know the the internet is full of information and i'm a very open person and so I, and i've dealt with some huge cases you know i've dealt with jimmy savile which is obviously massive oscar pistorius so I, I got the world exclusive with oscar pistorius i'm the only person that sat down and interviewed him uh madeline mccann it's obviously a massive story that and that and there's some vitriol around there i tell you what some of those people who follow the mccann you know story who are absolutely adamant that the McCann's evolved and will hear nothing else even if the evidence is compelling that they're not these are some really nasty people so yeah the world is made up of of lots and lots of people and sadly it's the minority it's the tiny minority that spoil it for the majority and there's a hell of a lot of trolls out there we've had a relationship with them over the years loads so 500 plus victims that you are aware of, big age range. Mm. A lot of the people we've interviewed on the podcast were in care homes, and it's like a pipeline to these. We've interviewed people who've been in prison, and a lot of the time they had like a care home background of abuse, and then they get on the drugs, get into crime, and a lot of the root cause goes back to this abuse. What was the socioeconomic backgrounds? of Savile's victims did he prey on the most disadvantaged in society yeah I think I think it probably would be fair to say that the majority of his victims were from a vulnerable element not just in terms of their age but because of their their social background so perhaps they sought out the opportunity to to spend time away from home they didn't have that relationship perhaps where they spent a lot of time at home which would take them away from being an environment with Savile and of course Savile had status around him quite quickly he became this local dj you know he when you go back to his very early days he created this this discoy club and then that took him onto the scene in terms of then doing um the bbc stuff and of course he became a massive massive name uh, and so i think the large majority of the, his victims were of that that society where they perhaps sought out something away from their home life not all of them there were a lot of people who were very you know very loved at home and and very cared for uh, because Savile didn't discriminate either way what Savile did do of course and this is not just Savile this is any offender is they're very clear in terms of their targeting so offenders very quickly will realize whether you are the right person to target They'll do certain things. They might say things. They might do things that actually test the waters in terms of whether or not they can push the boundaries. Uh, and and therefore, if they get away with it, they'll continue. And of course, if they're blocked or they don't, or the response isn't what is positive, they won't do it. So they target them. And of course, the more vulnerable you are, the more seeking you are of having some kind of relationship, whether that be in a purely platonic way, but 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 forming that kind of relationship. I mean, there are people out there who see someone on telly and think they know them, yeah? You know, they see that person and automatically they have that relationship with them. And I get that, that's fine. 
you know but i think that way then there were people that obviously sought savile out because of who he was and because of his status and thought you know well, actually he's an opening to this and savile did for some not to the degree of course that others you know max clifford was a classic one you know this, this um couch scenario where he offered people opportunities to to get into modeling or to get into television or to get into film uh, but savile did that to some oh good grief so um allegations that he accessed mental patients prisoners corpses what's your take on that so some of that is absolutely true so we did some work around broadmoor in the second series second program we did which was the uh, savile update and part of that we interviewed edwina curry who i've got to know really well now she's she's very nice and she was um she was one of the ministers there and she gave the responsibility to savile to be chair of this task force to go in and look at broadmoor and to see whether or not it needed improvement and broadmoor was that mentally ill people and so, prisoners so yeah so broadmoor is one of the top security prisons it's a mental mental prison uh, it's a hospital in essence really it's a hospital but the most dangerous are there so the craze peter sutcliffe uh yeah the most dangerous people in society who are in essence untreatable are in broadmoor or one of the other uh, institutions around that so they give a set of keys to savile in order to be on this task force now what edwina told edwina curry told us is that she was aware that he was using his power and influence around his role there and that might be to the degree that he would find out about staff certain doing certain things and then he would have power and control over them so they wouldn't say anything but we interviewed uh, witnesses victims from there who'd been in the care system in terms of being in in uh, broadmoor and there's one lady that gave us an account which was truly horrific so in those days the female ward would have bars kind of like old dormitories uh, private school so the bars would be alongside each other and she was taking a bath one day and she remembers having this bath and Savile just stood in the background just wandering around between the girls and she talks about one occasion when he then took her into a one of the rooms and indecently assaulted her but Savile had free reign around there I mean we interviewed Alan Franey who was the general manager there at the time, who was appointed, appointed as a direct result of Savile. So Savile took this task force role and they wanted a new general manager. And Franey, who had no experience in the mental health system, no experience in the prison system, he'd come from hospital and was simply a friend of uh, Savile's, was given this post. And then Savile, take, he comes into post and Savile's actually already there. And I remember interviewing Franey and said to him, so what role did you give him? And he said, well, he already had a role at the place. And I said, yeah, well, well what role was that? He said, well, uh, assistant entertainment's manager. I said, well, what did that involve? And he went, well, I'm not really sure. I said, you're the general manager. You're the boss. How did you not know what this bloke was doing? I said he had a set of keys. He said, well, yeah, he only had a set of keys. He didn't have a set of keys to the bedrooms. I said he had a set of keys to everywhere. He might not have been the room, the bedrooms, but he had a set of keys to, to go wherever he wanted. Well, I mean, we heard some horrific stories about what he did there. There is no doubt that he preyed on those individuals within the prison, set, prison network at Broadmoor. He had a free reign. I mean, there was staff that called us who were there at the time, who hated him, hated him with a vengeance because he effectively thought that he was the boss. He could come and go. He could do what he wanted. He ignored things. I mean, the keys, for example, you had to hang the keys up at the end of every shift. He didn't. He took the keys with him. 
you know, protocol broken all the time. So he got away with that. Um, and I think in terms of other places, so did he sexually abused numerous people at Stoke Mandeville uh, and a number of the other hospitals, particularly Stoke Mandeville, because that's where he spent an awful lot of his time. Uh, and in terms of access to mortuaries. Now, we do know that he spent a lot of time or quite a bit of time, particularly in the hospital in, in Leeds, I think it was, uh, being a, a porter. He would go in uh, at weekends, evenings, and he would take patients down to the mortuary. Did that give him access to the mortuary to victims? Yes, it did. Uh, there is no evidence, actual evidence that exists other than anecdotal evidence that he sexually abused anybody that was dead. So uh, my focus in terms of Savile is about evidence. So if you tell me something uh, until such time as I have that referenced by somebody else or I can, can validate it by somebody else telling me either not, not connected or because the times link up and everything like that then what you're telling me is information but it's not intelligence it's not something of evidential value so in terms of that what I would say is that I saw nothing that supported the accounts and they were limited that he had had sex with dead people and, and I'm not quite sure why he would because he spent so much time wanting to have sex with people who were or sexual contact with people who are alive. I'm not quite sure why he'd want to do it with anyone's dead. That's a very different type of offending behaviour. You said you heard some horrific stories of what he'd done at Broadmoor. What was the most shocking? I think it's the fact that these people were incarcerated for their own protection. They also incarcerated, of course, because they presented a risk to other people. But he was almost at will to walk round and touch sexually assault the females within there with any reper without any repercussions because no none of those people would ever be believed because of course they were there because they were incarcerated so their voice was never heard here's a message from our sponsor so jen is your ex still using your netflix or is it the other way around <laughs> <laughs> no i've been uh, taken off it now did he zap you off it with true Yeah, he deleted it. I, I don't know. He might have done. Ooh, gossip. Do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's something that drives me mad. Absolutely mental. Of course, it's a business scam out to get you. <laughs> don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take care of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions. That you don't need, want or simply forget about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Which is approximately 500 quid. <laughs> because these damn companies make it hard to cancel your subscriptions, Truebill makes it incredibly easy to cancel. Just link your accounts and Truebill will make it easy to cancel your subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there for when you want to cancel any unwanted subscriptions. So you don't have to. Take control of your subscriptions with the new free Truebill app. Truebill helps you discover hidden unwanted subscriptions and cancels them with just one click. Like Becca L who says, hands down... The best financial app I discovered. In my first week, I opened up $187 in unused recurring subscriptions. I'm obsessed. I never want to manage finances without Truebill again. 
So don't fall for subscription scams. Start cancelling today at truebill.com forward slash Sean. S-H-A-U-N. So go right now to truebill.com forward slash Sean. It could save you thousands per year. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. It's very important for the podcast production. And the links, as usual, are in the description box below this video. So Savile had total free reign. There was one girl we interviewed. And the impact on her when she gave us her account had changed her life. You know, she changed her life. She, she gave one account when she was quite young. She went there, I think, about 19, something like that. And she gave us an account when she was on her period and she she didn't really know what she was doing. It was quite an early, she was in a very distressed state and Savile just stood there, watched her and then later the day indecently assaulted her. And, he, and the way she gave us the account was just like, it, it, there was no sense of, of care in any way at all. He literally didn't care. I've read all kinds about his relationship with serial killer Sutcliffe. Mm. What's your take on that? So obviously we know Peter Sutcliffe was um, from Yorkshire and we know that one of his victims in the park was literally just over the back from where Savile had his sixth floor penthouse apartment. Uh, And there is undoubtedly, well, we know that Savile's name did feature in the West Yorkshire Police inquiry in relation to the Yorkshire Ripper. Not as a suspect, but as a name that came into the inquiry. So... There was a relationship that existed in terms of him linking to that investigation. And of course, we know that Sutcliffe and Savile had met each other because they were both in Broadmoor together before, of course, Sutcliffe was moved out of Broadmoor to where he is now. And so we know the relationship existed both prior to, potentially, and after. But what we don't know is whether that developed any further. There is no evidence that, that Peter Sutcliffe committed any of his offences with anybody else. He was a solo offender. And I have very grave doubts about any evidence that suggests that Savile was involved with any way with Sutcliffe as an offender. I don't believe that. There's no evidence to support that. I think what is true is that Savile formed a relationship with him when he was in jail. And we know that because he also formed a relationship with the craze when they were in jail. He sought out people that he thought could benefit him. He sought out people that he thought could be useful to him. Now, quite why he thought that Sutcliffe or Craze would be useful, I don't know. Or Maybe it was a morbid fascination. I think if you spoke to a large me- a numbers of the mem- members of the public and you said to them, you've got an opportunity to go and spend time with the Yorkshire Ripper or with the Craze, a lot of them would probably say, yeah, please, I'd love to do that. Um, so... Whether that was his fascination, I don't know. Well, was the Savile doc your first doc? On Savile? Was it your first ever documentary no, produced? No, no, no. So I've done, so Savile was, I mean, I've, so I've been making television programs now since 2007, was probably when I first broke into TV. And with a lot of challenges uh, so, to break into TV. Yeah, loads. Yeah, I mean, my first program. So I was, I, I went to, Tonight, I can't even remember what year it was. It must have been around 2007 or 2008, maybe. And I and I was going, I gave them a story about a priest uh, who lived in Germany and he was grooming a child in Wales. 
and we've got this information because of a, a charity. And I went to the network and I said, look, I've got this story. And they said, brilliant, love it. We'll put a reporter with you. And uh, and I went, oh, can I do it? And they went, you're just not a face. You can't suddenly just come in and do this. But we love you. We think you're great. So I said, okay, so we'll send you out. So off I go out to Germany and the reporter couldn't get there because he was on another story somewhere else. And the story moved really fast. So within the space of within the time of arriving in Germany, within 24 hours, we'd moved to a position where we needed to effectively confront the. And the reporter wasn't there. I remember saying to the editor, speaking to the editor in the car, and he said, "Look, Mark, are you up for doing this?" I said, "Yeah, of course." Bread and butter for me. You know, I'm used to talking to offenders. I'll just go and talk to him as I. So I go down into this cafe, uh, confront him, and he speaks to me for. 30 minutes coughs him his uh, chatting up a young girl tells me that he's sexually interested in young girls uh, and makes everything it was a pretty landmark moment in telly really uh, and that was my breakthrough and that was my breakthrough because mm. i then came back and the editor said look we can't get the presenter back in now you, are you happy to do it i went yeah and that was my opening so i so a bit of luck bit of you create a lot of your own luck and then obviously from them you know i presented lots of i've done jeremy Bamba, I've done. I mean, I, I think my list in terms of programs is is pretty extensive now. So by the time it got to Savile, I um, I'd already presented uh, I don't know seven eight programs before, and then obviously since then, I've um, presented many many more, and I've got my own ITV and Netflix series. Congratulations on all that. Then why are so prolific in the Catholic Church? <laughs> well, I think. Uh, a lot of offending behavior is around, as I said, access and opportunity, but also about power and control. And of course, within the church setup, the vicar, the man at the top, is a very powerful individual. So that enables the power and control of offending behavior. There's also an awful lot of secrecy within the church and unspoken things. So the trust that, he, that, that exists. And it's not just Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic, the Church of England has a massive has had a massive problems over the years in terms of child sexual abuse. One of the major problems of the church, and I use the church as a, as a collective, is that it's failed to acknowledge that this has taken place. So, within every organisation of which there are children and adults mixing together, there will be child abuse. That's it. That's a fact. But what, of course, organisations need to do is to firstly acknowledge that it takes place and then secondly deal with the aspects in terms of how do we stop it from happening and how we deal with it that has happened. And the church has dealt with that incredibly badly because it took for a long time a failing to acknowledge that it takes place. And then it took obviously failing to acknowledge that we need to deal with, uh, with the aspects that have happened and help those people and stop it from happening to the future. Now, stopping it from happening to the future is the easiest thing. The hardest thing is to deal with the people that have happened in the in the past uh, because, of course, that's acknowledging failings. And when you acknowledge failings, that means, sadly, in our litigious society, financial uh, uh, um, payments that have to be made. So I think the church has, has failed massively. It's got a lot better. It still has a long way to go, as do lots of other organisations. Uh, but it creates that Children have access within organisations, a lot of children, church, singing, all of that lot. And that is why access to men. And um, sadly, and I do think there's probably more to this, it's not work that I've ever undertaken, is the whole element of not being able to have a relationship, having to be celibate and all of that lot, um, I think will have an undoubtable impact on men 
you know men are and i don't i'm not a a scientist in any way at all but but men naturally have a sexual drive to them to some degree and i think if you don't con- understand what that is and control that then it might manifest itself in many different ways. I watched Sins of My Father and I was just horrified. You know, people leaving all this money to the church and then some of that money is going to these high-priced lawyers yeah. to move this guy around, just yeah. like 50 miles, 50 miles. Yeah. They're telling the victims, this isn't going to happen again, blah, 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 we're going to sort this out. And they just move, 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 and of course, move, that's move. how they used to deal with it. You know, and to, to a degree, much less now because of the transparency that exists. But that's how they used to do it. So back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, who committed or uh, priests who committed their offences were simply moved to a new parish, moved to a quiet area rather than dealt with. I mean, there's a there's a, a, a home. I think it's Our Lady of Victory. I think it's in the, in the West Country. And it's basically a home for priests. And the amount of people that went there, we did a bit of work around it to look to see who was there. But it was always very secretive. It was always very difficult. I mean, I did a big, I did a big investigation for BBC actually years and years ago into the Catholic Church, um, and we looked at it. And the Catholic Church were really angry with us, really angry. I mean, they 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 had real umbrance, but we got some really good information against them, and they they have. Some serious questions to answer, but so do the Church of England, so do the Anglican and all those church environments where secrecy, cover up, failing to acknowledge failure is a major problem. What was the good information you got against them? So, well, we knew specifically about um, uh, priests that were being moved. We knew specifically about archbishops who knew about offenders, but allowed them to continue uh, we did one person who was a, a very senior individual. We went and visited him in a nursing home, and uh, he was very up. The church was very upset about that. But these people need to be held to account. You know, if you know about somebody, you can't then just move them on and and, uh, and ignore it. So yeah, so we got some really. Um, and actually, we got some information that we couldn't do anything with. You know, we got some really useful stuff about Rome. You know, the whole concept and ideas of of young, uh, and they call them rent boys, but in essence, what they are is child victims so young male child victims being taken into the church in rome uh, or in, into um into where the church the priests are learning and actually being sexually abused we got some of that but we didn't we weren't able to particularly develop that so one guest recently told us that were attracted to join the catholic church because they knew if they got caught the full legal weight of the church would back them up and protect them. Did you ever hear anything that sinister? No, but I'm sure that's that's true. I'm sure that's possible. I'm not for a large majority. The large majority going to the church for actually absolutely the right reason. But like in society as a whole, there will be minority individuals that do that. And I'm sure that if they seek that. But the thing about sex offenders is that they seek out opportunities. And if they have the opportunity where they think, I won't get caught or the repercussions are very small, then, of course, they'll go for that because every offender goes through a process of cognitive distortion. And what I mean by that is, so we all practice cognitive distortion every day. So when you drove here today, you may have driven through a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit at 40 miles an hour, for example. Okay, So your cognitive distortion response to that was, be, well, I didn't go 45 
and there was nobody else around. So there was no children running around. It was quite a, it was a really quiet road. So you know you've done wrong, but you've logically tried to explain it in your own head. If you're a smoker, I only smoke five cigarettes a day, I don't smoke 20. All right, so that's cognitive distortion. But in terms of offending behavior, and it's applied to all elements of offending behavior, but particularly for child sex offenders. So their cognitive distortion is the process whereby they say, I won't get caught. But if I do get caught, I won't get very long. You know, so everyone goes through a process. So when you commit your offense, uh, the first time you commit your offense is the time that you're most likely to get caught because the victim's most likely to talk at that stage. But once it goes beyond the first time, the victim starts to, the power imbalance shifts and the victim starts to feel responsible, uh, has some impact in relation to that. I could have stopped it. I should have stopped what was going on. So all of those feel re- are, are elements that have a massive impact in terms of why victims don't come forward. But offenders get to a position where they try to, to logically explain their offending behavior. And that is the element of, will I get caught? What will happen to my family? You know, what is the impact on my work? So they have to explain all of that. But they'll go, well, I won't get caught. If they're you doing child abuse material online, I won't get caught because there's thousands of other people that do it and they never get caught. And if I do get caught, well, they let people off now. They just give community service. And if I do lose my job, I'll be okay because I can go and do that. So they'll come up with a thought process and then obviously have to try and read, try and explain it in their, their whole sense in terms of allowing them to continue. And that cognitive distortion is the fence post. So when you have, an, you have, your, offend, you have your offending behavior and then there's a fence after your offending behavior, you have to get over that fence. And that fence either stops you from offending or allows you to or means you continue to offend and the cognitive distortion either stops you from offending or allows you to offend so your cognitive distortion is i'm going to get caught ah but i'm okay because thousands of people do it and i never get caught you're over the fence but if at the point you say i'm going to get caught and you go i am going to get caught i'm going to lose everything from it that stops you from going over the fence and you don't offend again until such time as you get the urge and think actually i can now rationalize that in my head and i won't get caught do you think to have that many victims like Savile then, to be a large-scale psychopath like that, to have no feelings towards his victims, have you looked at his life history to see if there's any you know, nature versus nurture? I saw when he was a kid, something he banged his head and he was... He, he couldn't close his eyes. He was like a little baby and his eyes were open for like right. six months and they thought he was going to die. Right. Um, the, the thing where his, his dad died from, from cancer... Um, have you seen any factors in his life? Or? No, I mean, I think he had a very weird life. I mean, his mother was a dominance in his latter part of his life. And even when she died, he still kept his cupboard in the bedroom full of her clothes. I I think that that we never we will never know what was going on in that relationship with his mum. But I think it would be fair to say, and, and people will draw their own conclusion, that it was unhealthy at best. Uh, but it was really, really wrong. So, but I don't know what else, of course, took place in his relationship. Are you saying there was a possibility of it? I, I leave that to people to make their own determination. There was no evidence. We never had any evidence that told us that. Uh, but I think his relationship with his mother was uh, was incredibly unhealthy uh, for a grown man of his age. Uh, I mean, he never cooked. He never had any utensils in his house or anything like that. He didn't have any food in thing. He, he, he's, he. he he scrounged off everyone all the time. You know, you go to a local cafe and they'd pay, for, they'd give him food. He never used to pay for anything. I mean, he, he didn't own any of his Rolls Royces and things like that or his cars. I mean, he never, I think he finished two marathons. All the other marathons, he got in a car and he got driven. 
to the end. I mean, the man's just a complete liar. I mean, he'd say he'd charge £3,000 to turn up at fate. He'd turn up for 10 minutes and then disappear. A con, a total and utter con, uh, but a very convincing one, an incredibly convincing one, a very powerful one. Um, but I don't, I didn't, we didn't see anything. We didn't study his his childhood to the degree in terms of going right back because it wasn't really helpful to us. And I think one of the things that is, so that what separates me from some people is I'm an investigator. I go on evidence. I go on what's here and now and in terms of the evidence that's, that relates to my offending behavior. What creates you to do that? The, 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 the elements of nature nurture I'm not really interested in and I'm not interested in because it doesn't really help me. It doesn't help me understand in terms of the offenses that you've committed. There may be underlying issues that create you doing that, but we all make choices and we all make, we all decide to do things for a reason. Now, okay. Some of us are put on a path for a certain way because of that's how our upbringing are, but that's up to you. You know, you make the decision and particularly when it comes to right and wrong, we all know what is right and wrong. You know, some of the stuff that came out after Savile was people turning around and saying, yeah, but in those days, that was OK. I've seen that. Let's be very clear is it wasn't OK. It has always been wrong to sexually touch somebody without their consent or when they were a child. That hasn't changed. That's been there for years and years, decades and decades and decades. So anybody that comes forward and said it was OK society didn't used to do anything about it that didn't make it right society has now done something about it and that's absolutely right and so it should because those people that were offended against didn't have a voice they weren't able to be listened to now we listen to them that's absolutely right so when somebody gets away with something somebody does something wrong we have choices we all have life choices and if you take the wrong choice then you take the consequences you think TV programs like Benny Hill and Carry On kind of encourage that kind of behaviour? Yeah, I think morality. I mean, we're in a very different moral society now than we were back in those days. The Benny Hills, some of those elements. You know, they sexualised women. They sexualised women in a way that it was totally unacceptable. Uh, the problem is, is a pendulum never sits in the middle. So you've got one area, Benny Hill, and then you've got the other area, which is where the pendulum perhaps has moved much closer to now which is that everything's unacceptable you can't say anything about anybody so and the pendulum doesn't sit in the middle that's where you want it you want some kind of you know normality in terms of we can say these things we're not being abusive in terms of what we're saying and that covers not just in terms of sexuality it's racism it's across the whole board and i think we've got a we're in a very dangerous world now that actually it's very difficult to say anything. That said, of course, the likes of Benny Hill and some of those other things totally wrongly sexualized women, totally wrongly, were abusive in terms of that thing. And I, that has an impact in terms of the young generation. You know, as we're older, we see where those boundaries are. We understand what is and isn't acceptable. But when you are a young person and you're you're forming your understanding of life because every child is a blank canvas we learn from our environment we learn from what's around us so if we're seeing things that are sexualizing women if we're seeing things which are showing us that that's acceptable you know if you're in an environment at home where there's domestic abuse it's the norm where sexuality is something that's, that's openly discussed or shown or whatever swearing all of that lot it becomes the norm 
drug taking becomes the norm. And this is what ends up happening, of course, is children then follow that path into adulthood. And that early days of offending behaviour, bearing in mind offending now could be anything from 10 to 11, up to the late teens. That is why that bracket of offending behaviour is so huge, because that's still the learning element. Once you get to your 20s and 30s, you start to realise that's wrong. But of course, you don't know because of the environment. That is why, as a society and as parents, we have such a massive duty to make sure that our children are brought up in the right way and not exposed to things that will influence their decision making. So that's one side of it, not getting them exposed. I had a lady on, Dr. Sarah Good, and the podcast called Inside the Minds of And I've interviewed a lot of people and I, I had to stop. I felt physically sick with some of the things that she was telling me. It was the one that rattled me the most. But she went on a program, and she took on this program a who didn't act on his thoughts. Right. And he said, he had like a, a family and a, and, a, and a kid and everything, and he said, I'm doing this because the only way society is going to improve is if people understand the thought processes of right to be able to take the necessary measures mm. to help them yeah. not offend mm. but you've got on the other hand and understandably you've got this visceral reaction you know even um what was it people were getting attacked for not being but for being pedo um <laughs> it was in the news i can't remember what the word is some kind of doctor that's got that, okay, that yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, so a people, pe- a pe- pediatrician. Pe- pediatricians were being attacked, yeah, yeah. at one point. Um, so there's this visceral, visceral reaction. How do we help this problem? How do we minimize this problem? What, what do we do with the... Well, I think it's very... I went into, some years ago, I went into Grendon Prison, which is the only rehabilitation prison in the country. Uh, and they do very restorative in terms of trying to deal with sex offenders. And I sat there with 30 or so offenders and they tell me about their offending behaviour, which ranged from this one man who killed this kid and dumped the body uh, to these other people who talked about their offending behaviour. What was consistent throughout all of them is they all said that they knew one day they'd get caught, which was very interesting. Um, and they also had obviously gone through a process, so they were very much understanding in terms of, of what they'd done was wrong. I think there is a big learning we can get from paedophiles in the same way as... If you want to make your house secure, talk to a burglar. I think there's a a very sensible rationale to saying if we want to keep children safe, let's talk to offenders who offend against children. So I think there's some some value in that. Uh, But of course, we also have to understand that there are different different types of who will react and respond to treatment. There are those other that treatment is of no value. It won't make any difference to them. They're of a mindset and they'll continue to offend. They're dangerous individuals. So there is no one shape that fits all. What is consistent across the whole spectrum is the aspect that are the most abhorrent individuals. They've committed the worst crimes. And that's fine and absolutely is true. But what we have to do is we have to get to an element where we see an element of of both punitive and restorative element to that so i believe everyone needs to be punished for what they've done in different degrees Uh, so if you commit an offense against a child you need to be punished for that Uh, but there is also an element where you need to be restored restorative justice for that Uh, because we also know that that by stopping or doing some element of treatment and restorative justice we can reduce the amount of victims that will 
the offenders that will repeat offending. Is that where the victim and the offender meet and talk? Well, both in terms of that, but also understanding the impact of the victim. So embedded through treatment process. So that treatment process through the restorative justice element of it. Restorative justice is kind of like a big catch-all where it's also included meeting one-to-one. But I use it in terms of also treatment and aspects of that. If we enable that to be properly um, implemented, then we can reduce some of that offending behaviour. We can also increase understanding between the public. So some of the reasons that obviously children get abused is because they are... Uh, vulnerable the very people who should be protecting them their parents are the very people that make them vulnerable and enable them to be offended against in the first place because there is obviously a massive power difference between an adult and a child so talking about it awareness of it helps massively we are a much safer society now than we were 20 30 years ago that said offending behavior has changed so if we had the same element of knowledge now that we had 20 years ago, I reckon that the offending behaviour would be reduced. The problem is, is the offending behaviour is increased because of the access to children. Mm. Internet, mm. all of those things there, will, of course, creates a falseness. So children now are contacted by offenders uh, who can then use their power and influence to get access to them. Uh, it's in your bedroom. You know, the gone are the days now where actually you needed to go out of the house to the playground for a child to offend against you. Now the child is in your bedroom. So you said earlier that the police can access everything on your phone, everything on the on the internet. Is it just a case that there's so many out there and the police don't have the resources to stop it? It's fish in a barrel. It really is fish in a barrel. You know, they go round and round and round and, and it just goes on and on and on. So the scale of... of online is phenomenal worldwide you know the amount of child abuse material that gets shared between people both in terms of the normal internet and the dark web is phenomenal Uh, police forces do not have the resources and of course now when i started investigating you know when i when some of the early arrests that i made in relation to child abuse i remember uh, arresting a teacher called adrian stark who was a teacher at st john's st john's school leatherhead very prestigious school uh Uh, Montgomery went there and we got a specific piece of information that he had got a number of children to go to uh, when he was on holiday in Prague they'd come to his apartment and he'd uh, had um, had the two young children there we didn't know what had happened that was a piece of information that came to me we then got him stopped at customs as he came back through he didn't have anything on him we then got a warrant we searched his place at St John's Leatherhead he wasn't there but we searched his house and we found in in one of the spare rooms a one of these old kind of boarding school uh, lock lock up the boxes types of things and in it was just full of child abuse magazines and videos but the old vhs videos child abuse magazines and videos yeah, the old vhs videos the magazines there's actually a magazine that they published just of child abuse yes so 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 we found all of these and that then led us on to the process of of actually led into a national schools inquiry but what is interesting is of course that now doesn't exist it's now all online so whereas in those days it was a three four hundred magazines and videos now it's millions you know terabytes and things it's millions of images so whereas you could look at all of those now every one of those images needs to be checked because whilst in a magazine 
it's fine because that's how it's been produced by the the company so you're not needing to look for those victims the videos yes of course you need to watch and we would watch every video uh, but as far as the child abuse material that that's now collected you need to watch all of those but they're not because there are so many images i mean child abuse so the the understand child abuse is where it came from is very interesting so in the 1970s Child abuse material flooded the US, the UK market, potentially, uh, essentially through Soho. What ended up happening is that there was a uh, production houses in Scandinavia that were making adult pornography, right? And the producers of that realized that there was a market for child abuse images, right? They called it, and in fact, the Americans still called it. So they saw there was a market. So what they did is they created a number of little number of titles under the same auspices of the adult pornography market. These types of names. And then they started to send that out into the markets worldwide and it got a good response. So the Scandinavian countries, and this is where you, you now when you look at it, you think, how incredible is that? So Scandinavian countries said that we are happy for you to, we will allow you to produce this material as long as no Scandinavian children are involved in the abuse. So that then started to flood the UK market through the, under the market, under the shelves in the, uh, the sex shops in Soho. And because at the time in the 1970s, the British police were incredibly corrupt within Soho. Uh, they turned a blind eye to it and they allowed this material. So this material then started to flood the market and that is what ended up happening. And yeah, and then of course it went on to to uh, suppliers through um, European countries where it would be obtained and, and brought into this country. And that's where, of course, now money as far as pornography and, uh, and child abuse materials is is pretty much free. Yes, so some of, there are elements, of course, where financial aspects come into it. But now it's, it's readily available. You know, if you're a, an adult and you want to, to view adult pornography, it costs you nothing online. Years ago, you had to go and buy a magazine. You had to go and buy a video. So the whole market has changed in that aspect of it. So in terms of how one benefits and makes money from it, it is, has changed massively. Gone are the days. So Children are a commodity. They're a commodity in terms of exploitation. So if you are a trafficker of a child, if you're, an exploit, if you're exploiting it in some aspect, your child is your commodity. And what I think we haven't always acknowledged is how much of a commodity a child is. <sighs> if the Scandinavians were allowed to continue without using Scandinavian kids, what kids did they use? I don't know. I think other countries... That, that just clearly weren't from Sweden and Scandinavia. So they prey on like the poorest countries, like you see. Yeah, I think Gary so. Glitter was on the run, wasn't he? In yeah, Cambodia, although, Vietnam, places. Although like interestingly that. enough, those children in those in those early days were not particularly seen in child abuse materials. Um, I think what's been very interesting is that we haven't seen a massive rise of child abuse material in the countries like um, Africa and places like that. So we've not seen, you know, uh, black children massively involved in child abuse material which is interesting it's still overwhelmingly white children uh, and that might have something to do with the reach of technology that's that's gone to some of these third world countries compared to here although interestingly now you go to some of these world third, third world countries and their internet uh, is better than it is here <laughs> okay so um you said you had to watch as part of your job you had to watch some of these mm. videos 
What does that do to you mentally? Well, you separate yourself. So in the early days when you used to watch the material, so it was a... So Metropolitan Police had a viewing unit up at uh, New Scotland Yard and a number of other forces did, but predominantly New Scotland Yard. So they had videos, banks of TVs, and on the banks of TVs, they would always have adult pornography showed as well. And then they'd have the, obviously all the other videos and there might be a news thing as well. And then we'd sit and just watch and just mark off obviously the thing. We, we set up a TV set up in Surrey Place when we did that. And um, and the idea of having the adult pornography, it was a, I don't know who came up with it, but it was about trying to, to show you the, the, the norm kind of as it were compared to the child abuse material. Uh, but you used to end up having to watch the whole lot because what ended up happening with a lot of offenders and certainly the ones that I dealt with is that they would cut child abuse into videos. So you might start watching a VHS video, which is EastEnders or, or Coronation Street or a film, and then they'd cut in between that the child abuse material. And by doing that, of course, if you were not uh, you know, a proper thorough investigator, you might just watch the beginning, switch off and then not find it. So it was a way of trying to protect them. Um, and particularly if it was homemade stuff, particularly if it was their own offending behaviour, if it was a video that they bought from somebody else, uh, from a supplier, then of course it probably was going to be from the beginning to the end. Um, but we had lots of, I remember we watched... Um, one video. So there was a big stage around probably the 80s and 90s when there was a lot of talk about videos. That was my next question. Okay. So there was a lot of talk about 80s and 90s rounds videos. I remember watching one video up at New Scotland Yard um, and they they were told it was the only video that was around. And we watched this video and, um, and this person did get killed. But that's what you thought that had happened. So it looked like they were killed. One would never know. The child was never found. And the, the brutality of the offending behaviour was pretty brutal. It may or may not have killed the child. Um, but there was no, there was never any established. So whilst there's talk about videos existing, in essence, it's a video of a murder. Uh, there was no evidence of any videos ever existing in those times. That said, there are videos now that it exists. Uh, less so about, but more about, a person being murdered and being filmed what's the worst thing you've ever seen on one of these videos then oh i mean they're all bad i mean i think you, you go from any element of any time when somebody is in a position where something is happening to them where they are not consenting and they are scared they're frightened is horrible i mean there's a number of videos that is that you know now you say it, it comes back to my head and I think about them and they are I mean they'll never leave me they're in my head and I see them um really really horrible stuff and particularly when you can see you know I can see child's faces who are in trauma and, and real pain uh having been or being abused I grief essential to get the job done though and, and nail these bastards do you think that without your documentary on Savile, it wouldn't have been as exposed as it was? You, oh, yeah, you I mean, played a, a key yeah, role. I mean, if, if we hadn't have exposed Savile, so had if Newsnight had been able to get theirs off the ground, it w I do not believe it would have would have caused the ricochet, the impact that ours did at all, because they had a completely different story. So that's the first thing. And I think had we not have got Savile off the ground then I don't think we'd be where we are now. Now, I can't say that with certainty because other things might have happened. Somebody else might have happened. But if the impact of Savile, I mean, Savile led to 
Max Clifford being arrested and prosecuted, Rolf Harris being arrested and prosecuted, uh, the um, It's a Knockout guy, Stuart Hall, being arrested and prosecuted, and not just those people who are in the public eye, but hundreds, hundreds of other people up and down the country where victims came forward and spoke about. Now, often we don't talk about those people because they're not in the public eye, but there are, Savile led to thousands of people being saved, hundreds of offenders being arrested, just in the space of 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 a one-hour program, a 47-minute program with adverts. So I think it was a, there was a piece written in The Guardian the following day saying that, you know, this is a, never has television defined a moment anymore. And I think it's true. I think if you look back in terms of some of the coverage and some of the stuff that's, that's been talked about, I think that 47 minutes of television has probably been in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 decades, one of the biggest changing moments. And of course, there's been other important moments. Of course, there has. But in terms of changing attitudes, changing public opinion, I don't think there's been a, a program that's done. And I'm incredibly proud to be part of that. And and yeah, it was hard work. I mean, I, I've, I've never really talked in detail of, of how hard it was and some of the hoops we had to jump through to get it broadcast but it was hard you know these these people who go oh you know you you made a program you put it out i tell you what that making that program and getting it to air was the hardest thing that i've ever done and will ever do i'm sure in the rest of my life what were the biggest hoops just getting on air i mean it was just incredibly difficult getting people to to believe you getting people to to take that i mean this what we were about to out a, kind of the biggest status person in british television that there'd been and and that was momentum so it was a huge thing for the BB, for itv to do massive thing and there was a lot of public anger towards it you know even in the days leading up to the program's broadcast i remember we did a bbc leeds did a phone in and during that phone-in, they were criticising me, basically saying, this guy, Mark William Summers, who the hell does he think he is, Expose, you know, thinking that he can expose this guy, he's done so much for charity, this guy is such a good, he's not here to defend himself. And uh, and I remember listening to it, and I listened to it because I wanted to hear if there was anyone that phoned up and said anything like he abused me and try and get hold of them. Anyway, nobody did. I got quite a lot of grief, and I remember they were trying to phone me all morning, will you come on, when you come on? And I said to my agent, I'm not going on at all, I just, why would I go on to, to listen to that? Um, and and then obviously the the program goes out, or so the news. The program goes out on the Thursday, but on the Sunday the articles start, and it was quite interesting how the media shifted. So you could see from the Sunday to the Tuesday. By Tuesday, the media were all on my side. They'd start to find victims themselves. They were believing the story, and and it then became a very much a, uh, a momentum. I mean, I, the program went out, and I withdrew myself from the media for two weeks. I, and the reason I did that is because I didn't want the story to be about me. It was never about me. It was about the victims. I, I was the vehicle for the story. I was the person that, that that did the investigation and made it happen. But it wasn't me. You know, whenever anybody is prosecuted, you know, when um, the Wests were caught, you know, it wasn't about the senior investigating officer. It was about 
the catching of of him and that's what i wanted savile to be about and yes of course i was the vehicle i was the person that created it um and had the confidence to take it further forward uh, but it was about letting the victims and the story tell so i stood away for two weeks and i only came back when nicky campbell phoned me up and nicky said come on and i'd done some work with nicky on a, on a different program i'd filmed with and nicky said come on, please will you give me an interview and i went no, i'm not i'm not talking he said come on he said please Anyway, he convinced me and i did and then i spoke again after that but i didn't want the story i wanted the story to be about savile um and then of course yeah and i've i've been you know the program has won multiple awards you know, television awards, uh, nominated for a BAFTA, and I'm, a crazy, I'm amazed it didn't get it BAFTA, but uh, it won everything else. And so, yeah, I think the recognition has been there, which has been great. Yeah, the team has been, the tiny team, you know, only the four of us have been brilliant. And I think it has, to be part of something that has changed life so much is pretty unique. I've got a few more questions before we finish that are not Savile related. Okay. So I'm just going to ask you now, before I go there, um, is there anything that you've not said today or is there anything that you've learned since your program over the years that we've not covered today about Savile that you'd like to tell the public? Um, no, I mean, I think the totality of Savile, I think what's been lost is, is it holding anyone to account. So I think the biggest problem about Savile is that Savile, we know about Savile's offending. We know about that very well. We know about his impact on society. But what has been lost is those people that could have stopped it from happening or those people who had knowledge about it. So out of those 44 reviews, not a single person has been held to account. Everybody has managed to to evade any level of real responsibility. And I don't think that's right. And I'm not about blaming people. But when we make mistakes and when we get things wrong, I believe we have to be accountable. And particularly when we're in positions of responsibility. So if you are a police officer and your job is to investigate a crime, if you fail to do that properly, then you need to be held to account for that. So when Savile was interviewed in 2007 by Surrey Police, he was interviewed at Stoke Mandeville Hospital where he had a bed, not his house, at his Stoke Mandeville Hospital. He interviewed, he did that interview on his terms when he wanted it, where he wanted it. Surrey Police did not advise Stoke Mandeville Hospital of allegations, three separate sexual abuse allegations against him. He was working at the hospital. He had an access hospital and he had access to vulnerable people, young children at Stoke Mandeville. Yet he's being investigated for indeed sexual assaults on three people and they didn't bother telling Stoke Mandeville. Total failure. Uh, he, they didn't tell Thames Valley Police of whose force area it was didn't tell them that and the interview itself provided vital information that had the police officers bothered to follow up on would have shown Savile to be lying but they just simply took what he told them as being true dismissed everything else the allegations against him and did no investigations so that f and he led the investigate he led the interview um and in a way, I, didn't have, I don't have a problem with him leading the interview per se because I quite like that sometimes because I like to give the interviewer, the, the person being interviewed, the feeling that they're very comfortable and lull them into a false sense of, of feeling that uh, they can say what they want because by and large, when people feel really comfortable, they talk. 
Rather slip. than yeah, rather than feeling under pressure. So my invest my interviewing techniques for the very first interview was always to allow you to talk. You know, if if, if it was the other way around, I'd literally be probing you on lots of things, but I'd be letting you talk loads if I was after stuff from you. And so that's fine. I don't mind them doing that. But there would have been a second interview where I'd have come back to you and said, well, what about this? What about this? They followed up on none of that. But those officers were nothing happened to them, you know. So and that's not just that the BBC. I mean, I, the Dame Janet Smith did the review for Jan- for BBC. I mean, I so I am responsible for exposing Jimmy Savile. I have more knowledge about Jimmy Savile than probably anybody else. Perhaps not so much now because lots of other people have done work around it, but certainly at the time, they launched this this review and um, and I see a piece in the BBC news basically saying we're looking for anybody that has information about Jimmy Savile, and I wait and think, oh, well, someone will contact me from the inquiry. Nobody does, so I wrote to Dame Janet Smith's team and said, do you not want to interview me? And they came back and said, well, we don't know if you've got anything relevant to tell us. And I went, I went, well, that's up to you to decide, isn't it? I said, but you won't know unless you ask me. Anyway, so they did ask me to go along. So I went along, sat there with Dame Janet Smith with her lawyers. I didn't like the female lawyer. She was very arrogant. But Dame Janet Smith, and I said to her, listen, before we start, I said, I'm, you are very, you're eminent. That's absolutely fine. But I'll tell you the truth here. I've investigated this man for a long time. I'm very good at what I do. I have a, a, you know, a very good track record. To sit there and say to me, you don't know what I've got, you don't think I've got anything to say without even asking me what it is, is your first failing. And secondly, why would you not go to the person that starts all this off? I said, I've never done an investigation where I haven't spoken to as many people as possible to give me that piece of information. Anyway, we got to the end of it and she did apologise. She said, look, I'm sorry we got that wrong. (laughs) So fair play to her. (laughs) All right, two final questions then. Madeleine McCann theories are massive on the channel. People are obsessed with the case. Mm. I have one guest on and I get death threats over her coming on because of what she says. Who? Okay. So I'd just like to say to the audience, I am on the fence with the Madeleine McCann case. It is a mystery. The viewpoint of the guest does not represent my own viewpoint. And I'm open to having all the sides of the case looked at on this channel. If people want to come forward and give other sides, contact me. We will get you on if, if you know what you've got to say is going to be interesting for people. What is your perspective? Yeah, I, listen, I've been very vocal in it. I've, um, I've done a review on it. And I think it's very clear from my point of view is that on that morning of Madeline's disappearance, we know that Madeline said to Jerry and Kate, uh, where were you last night? And Jerry and Kate explained that they were at the tapas bar, which was obviously just around uh, uh, having to come out the apartment and go back in again. And we know that in the consecutive days prior to Madeline's disappearance, that Sean and Amelie had woken up. They had cried because the neighbour said that they'd heard tears and crying. So there was a pattern in terms of waking up in the middle of the night. And that's what young children do anyway. So when Jerry and Kate were out that night, I believe that Madeline woke up was either woken up or woke up herself because of the uh, of um, the other kids crying and went to look for mum and dad. And as she walked out of the apartment, she had to walk out onto the main road to go back in again because that's how the process works. The apartment was insecure. The back door was unlocked and open. Uh, 
because there was no airflow through the apartment. So the front, the back door was open. And I believe she walked down the apartment and out onto the stairs looking for mum and dad. And that's where she was abducted. Uh, now, some people would say, well, hang on a minute. What's the chance of a predatory paedophile being in the area abducting a child on that location at that time? So then you look in terms of, well, what is the evidence to support that? And then you look in terms of the um, so, uh, Sarah Payne. So Sarah Payne was abducted by Roy Whiting. Sarah Payne literally was out with her, her family. She was walking through a fence and within a matter of seconds, having walked through the fence, her parents come through the fence and she's gone. What did that happen? Uh, so that's in Sussex. So she's walking through. Her parents walk behind. She's vanished, disappears. And her brother sees a white van disappear. And in fact, in that white van, it's, it was Sarah Payne having been abducted by Roy Whiting. He kills her, sexually abuses and kills her. So that's a matter of, of seconds. And then had, you he look, been, had he been watching them at all? No. So he was a predatory who, who was opportunistic, absolutely opportunistic. And then you look at, you look at um, Jeanette Tate. So Jeanette Tate in the West Country, she was out with her friends. She was cycling down a hill. And when she got to the bottom of the hill, she went over the brow of the hill. Her friends were behind her. When her friends came over the brow of the hill, her bike was at the bottom of the hill. She had gone. The body's never been found. She has disappeared. And the strong belief is that uh, uh, Robert Black was the, the murderer of her. But that was a matter of seconds again between going over the top and Robert Black didn't target her. Absolutely opportunistic. So when you look in terms of sex offenders and uh, we have two cases in the UK where opportunistic predatory abducted children. And so the evidence is there to support it. I used to speak at an FBI conference in the US uh, every year. And I one year I did a comp I did a presentation on child abductions uh, and featured the aspects of Madeling and some of the cases around this. And it is across the world, you know, predatory, opportunistic predatory, very rare, but they are there. And of course, when they are there, there's massive news about it. So I believe so. They, so why do children get abducted? So why would Madeline be abducted? Well, domestic servitude. You wouldn't abduct a, a child as young as Madeline for domestic servitude because she wouldn't do anything for you. You couldn't help. She could, she, she'd argue, she'd complain. Replace a child that's been lost or murdered or, or dead, uh, so someone suffering some mental health issues. So you couldn't, again, put Madeline back in that position because she'd be the wrong age and she'd look different. And, of course, she was a massive worldwide... Uh, name and picture so you couldn't just replace her so those eliminates two of those the children so why do children get children get essentially for um domestic servitude or for sexual abuse right the older slightly older for sexual abuse because you can't rationalize with a child as young as madeline so you can rationalize with a 11 year old 10 year old but you can't with a younger child so that she would just cry. She'd scream, she'd cry. So you then end up having to get rid of her pretty quickly. So that's no, that's of no use to her. And then, of course, the final one is for sexual exploitation and, and murder. So sexual exploitation, commit the offence there and then. They're going to talk about it. We can't just drop the kid back off on the street. So kill. So sadly, I think that's what's happened. Um, I believe that she was abducted outside the apartment. Now, there's obviously all kinds of theories. People say, yeah, but, you know, why would she walk out of the apartment? And obviously I've explained that. Offenders going into apartments and abducting children from apartments is even rarer, is even rarer 
than abduction by an opportunistic. So that tells you how rare that is. And it just doesn't happen. Uh, burglars don't abduct children. Burglars burgle. They don't abduct children. And of course, where do you get rid of the child if you are going to burgle and take the child and, and get rid of them anyway? Everything was done pretty quickly. And she was a massive, massive name. You just couldn't get rid of her. And as far as the fam- parents go, obviously there's a lot of chat around the parents. And you know, I, I could talk for you a, a long time and explain to you why the evidence doesn't support against the parents. It doesn't. And those people that are convinced the parents have done it are sadly of the, the, the group of people who will fail to acknowledge the totality of the evidence. So they'll pay attention to a piece of evidence and ignore this other piece of evidence because they want to have their view that it's the family that's involved. I think the sad thing is, and I've been on record with this, I did this on the Radio 4 Today programme, the sad thing is, is that had Jerry and Kate not left them that night, Madeline would still be here now, um, certainly in relation to this offence. So that is what, and the biggest or the saddest thing out of this is, is they have to live with that for the rest of their life. So all of those people out there who are critical of the McCanns, I'd say to one minute, just think about that and the impact of them having to live with that. And again, one of the interesting things is those people who are convinced of the McCanns is if actually you say to them, so what did happen to her? They don't have an answer. And the best answer they have is Amaral's answer. So Amaral, who's a completely discredited former police officer, who says that she fell off the back of the settee, smacked her head, parents panicked and disposed of her body. It's just illogical. I mean, it is it is the most stupidest scenario you could possibly think of. Two highly educated medical professionals whose daughter has died, panic and dispose of her body. Why? It is logical, absolutely logical. And that's where you, so you say to, I mean, I've, I've many people, you know, I get the grief, all the grief, and, and I'm sure I will off the back of this, is that I'd say to those people, just tell me then what you think happened, because it's not good enough. And, you know, this idea that she was put in the back of the car year, you know, weeks later. So that's put in the back of the car under the biggest media spotlight, moved a body that had been up until that point hidden that makes no sense so those people out there i mean the problem is is that the people out there who are commenting by and large no i'd say all of them (laughs) haven't been to the scene don't understand the totality of the evidence and are incredibly selective so you're saying lone wolf opportunist not targeted no, I can't see it being targeted because I don't think the I, I don't think there was there was certainly nobody watching the apartment and things like that. And and pe- thing is with the uh, sex offenders and is that they don't they've that are opportunistic like that. They don't choose a specific target. It's much more opportunistic. Thank you very much for coming on, Mark. So, for the people watching this again. Let's tell them the name of your book. So Hunting Killers, and it's available online. It's also available as an audio book, so you can listen to my voice talking to you in the car. Oh, you did it yourself? To... Yeah, I did it myself. Oh, that's a, hard, that's a horrendous was thing hard. to do, isn't it? Was <laughs> hard, yeah. Three, three intense days of complete oh. reading. So, I mean, voiceovers, is a, there's a real knack to doing voiceovers anyway. It's a unique skill, isn't it? It is a big skill. <laughs> and so doing three days of, of listening to that voice, that was, that was hard. But yeah, so it's so on that and obviously you can look at my – I have a series on Netflix called The Investigator uh, and follow my Twitter. Uh, I'm on TikTok now. 
and also Instagram, and you'll be following some of my cases. So I've got a big investigation into Lee Boxall at the moment, which is ongoing, and a couple of other big investigations, one into the murder of Nicola Payne, which is under development for a broadcaster. Um, but yeah, lots of lots of things in the pipeline. Obviously, COVID's made a big difference, and, and I'm not quite sure when we'll get back to some kind of normality as far as filming goes. Uh, but yeah, lots in the pipeline. Love to get you back on to discuss some of those other cases. Do you have a preferred method of people contacting you? Is it through Twitter, Facebook? Twitter, Facebook. Um, I've got a website so that people can contact me through a website. I mean, I, listen, if you, I'm more than happy to hear from anybody. If you want to, to no send, weirdos. If you want to send me an Trolls. email that just slags me <laughs> off, then fine, it just ignored. Uh, but if you want to send me an email, it's got some interesting information, or or you know, you know what I'm always interested in is those people who have got cases which need investigating those people that perhaps know a certain piece of information around a crime that actually want it solved, want something happened, but don't really know who to tell or what to do. They're not going to go to the police. You know, I love to hear from those people. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please let us know in the comments below what you thought of it. And um, if you've got any questions, put them down in the comments as well. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers subscription logos in the bottom right hand corner huge thank you to people donated so we can produce these podcasts in the studio with james our cameraman and joe our sound engineer all the donation links are in the description box as well as links to all the socials and everything else we've got going on right now great cheers thank you very much matt yeah thanks (laughs) here at boomer and jen We offer a wide range of organic or recycled clothing. We all know our planet is important. We only have this one. So it's vital that we all work together to slow down and reverse the changes to the environment. Whilst we all know that big industry are having a significant effect on pollution, here at Boomer and Gen, we believe that if we all make small changes, we can do our part. Fast fashion causes detrimental effects to the planet. Not only is nearly 20% of global wastewater produced by the fast fashion industry, but there is a considerable amount of fast fashion ending up in landfill. So let's move away from fast fashion items that are only worn once or twice and start wearing extremely comfortable, durable and environmentally friendly clothing and ethical jewellery. Boomer and Jen was founded in a quiet town in Devon in 2018. It has now gone from strength to strength as the world is becoming more aware of the current climate situation, helping our customers to buy sustainable, quality clothing. All of our products are fair trade and registered with the Global Organic Textiles Standard Association. Check us out on Organic Cotton Clothing dot co dot uk